Just because you're talking loudly or you feel intense emotions doesn't mean that you're vulnerable. And that's a huge mistake that we all make. You know, I'm, I'm really trying to tell you something important right now. Why aren't you listening to me? And what we don't realize is that actually in that moment, it is one of the least optimal frames of mind to be in to receive comfort, which is why it is so confusing. And so many couples come in and say, I have been trying to talk to my partner about this for years, or I have never been able to live up to their expectations for years. And so what's the point of talking about this? I just shut down. There's no point in getting into a fight. That level of fatigue, having gone through things over and over again, feeling hopeless, anticipating that the way your partner is going to respond is going to lead to a disagreement. Those are all incredibly important factors in resolving and being able to feel hurt again. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges. Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 31. I feel quite inspired as we all realize that the holidays are soon upon us and those of us that live in parts of the world that get colder at this time of year you know, things really start to change. And as we get into later November, really things are getting ready for this time of the year that is is quite special. No matter how you celebrate, you can't avoid the ways that people start to get ready to hibernate a little bit with each other. And the interesting thing about family and relationships is that actually it can be a very stressful time for so many people to be home, to face relationships that maybe sometimes don't get a lot of attention when we're working throughout the year. And so I want to dig deep with you all and sort of prepare us emotionally to go into some of these uh, opportunities to get closer. And to do that, I'm going to talk about intimacy and also have a number of couples therapists and guests to share from their perspective why it's hard, first of all, to, to stay close, to get close, and also some ideas about what we can do to, to get ourselves ready. So I wanted to mention that on my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, I have an intimacy problem workbook that I wrote. It's a short workbook that goes into various 
exercises and theoretical frameworks for intimacy, if you're looking for novel ways to get into your body, to become more curious about some of the blocks to closeness. So please check it out. And feel free to email me if you have any questions about the book or about some of the stuff I write about. But I wanted to address a kind of misconception that a lot of couples come to, even when they come to couples therapy, where there can be a very superficial notion that couples therapy is about the relationship. And that may seem like a very strange thing to say. I mean, of course, it's about the relationship. But what I mean is that couples will come and say, oh, our problems are about this relationship. As if there's another relationship the person is in, which is better. And of course, if that is the case, well, then there are, there are bigger problems in that relationship. But that's a subject area for another podcast. The issue is that what is so profoundly important when it comes to thinking about intimacy is that in so many ways, it doesn't have to do with the other person at all. I just came from seeing Samuel Beckett's play Waiting for Godot, which was playing here in Stockholm, and a few old acquaintances actually were here from North America performing in this play, some people that I've worked with and performed with. And it was extremely moving. And if you don't know Samuel Beckett's work or the play Waiting for Godot, there was a famous staging of it with Steve Martin and the late Robin Williams on Broadway. And it's an existential exploration by Samuel Beckett about two friends who have known each other for decades who can't live with each other and can't live without each other. And for the over two hours of the play, there's this wrestling going on where all kinds of important questions around our existence, around comfort, around religion, around love, around relationship are explored in this intense environment of hopelessness and then hope and then hopelessness again. And there's a huge deconstruction of all that we consider to be true. And I think it's an incredible document. It's a scary piece of theater because if you really listen to his writing, it just breaks down some of these sacred cows that we have in our lives around what we seem to think in a moment is solid and another moment is not there. And I think it lends itself very well to what I want to talk about today and this idea that I presented at the beginning of the podcast, which is that that actually if we're going to profoundly get close to somebody else and ourselves, as I've often mentioned on this podcast before, there are so many deaths that take place along the way. There are so many deaths of what we think about ourselves, how we experience our own emotions, what we think the other person is or who they are, and all the grieving that has to go on when actually some of the things that we fell in love with in, in the first place maybe are much more complicated than we initially thought or represent 
you know, unfulfilled longings in ourselves. You know, the cliche that opposites attract or that we see something in our partner that, you know, we want for ourselves. But that's a very, very complicated idea because often if we're evacuating something that we want for ourselves, for instance, if if somebody else is outgoing and we're like, oh, I love, I love how you are at parties or how you can schmooze or how social you can be, you know, often that represents our biggest fears, you know, or the other way around that maybe we see someone who's kind of quiet and pensive and it, it just seems so refreshing to meet somebody who's not always talking all the time. And it's hard for us to slow down. Eventually, shit hits the fan, period. Full stop. And that's what I mean that couples therapy, it's not really about this relationship. Often, it's about the cross that somebody has to bear in their own life. You know, there was a beautiful session the other day when this couple came in and she was so open and honest. And she said, you know, that she finally realized that some of her panic, you know, in her 20s, in the early marriage, her panic about things not being the way they should be, or her husband not being the person she thought he was going to be, that she realized that that overwhelmed her and made it impossible for her to see things from his perspective. And these moments are, are so universal, right? This is where traditions like archetypal psychology, the psychology of Carl Jung, or psychoanalysis, looking at having to tolerate frustration, are, are extremely important adjuncts to our journey around intimacy because hyper-focusing on our needs, hyper-focusing on somebody else fulfilling our needs is a problem. It's a problem because inevitably we're going to be disappointed. I mean, this is one of the basic premises of waiting for Godot. They're waiting for this person to arrive that never arrives. Maybe they arrive and they missed him. We don't really know. But there's this deep, deep sense of alienation and frustration that is simply a part of the human experience. And you can tell that Beckett is unresolved as well. I mean, that's part of what makes it in so many ways scary and, and vulnerable because you can tell that there is no resolution. They end up, you know, deciding in the last lines of the play to try to leave and then they don't. They decide to wait. And so the last 10 seconds are like the first 10 seconds. <laughs> and, and I think that's very important when we really contemplate the kinds of issues that the human being is going through alongside their partner and how easy it is, and I'm sure I do this all the time, how easy it is to evacuate our own loneliness in an unconscious way, expect another person to make it go away, and then to rail against the world when when it's not possible. And as I'm saying this, I, of course, realize that the, the real thrill of being with someone, of course, is being able to talk about these things and 
open up about these laments or hold hands, for instance, at, at somebody's funeral that you loved or come home from, I don't know, losing a job or, you know, going through a difficult experience and having someone be in there with you. And so there is this very interesting tension where it's both end, you know, it's, it's on the one hand, we can't react in such a binary way around our loneliness and expect, you know, someone else to somehow make that go away. On the other hand, we have every right to expect that the relationship is a kind of, you know, playground for our vulnerability. I mean, those two things have to coexist. I just think that some of our, you know, earlier ways, our regressive ways of responding to disappointment just take hold in our relationships. And to be honest, if the neuroscience is correct, they never go away. One of the analogies that's really important to keep in mind about these questions around emotional change. You know, there's a cliche that, you know, I love you, you're perfect, now change. And people will come in and say, well, I can't change. I am who I am. And, you know, actually both those things are true, meaning we need to change, period. We can't remain in a kind of rigid, locked-in emotional position for our lives. That's a recipe for disaster and a recipe for dis-ease. But also, we retain at our core fundamental patterns and networks that stay with us from birth. And we can get close to them. We can learn about them. We can become more familiar with with typical and habitual responses. But when we look at, at certain diseases like Alzheimer's and other cognitive illnesses, we realize that actually when we lose our kind of mature adult ability to contain ourselves, what comes out of the human being are early patterns of of emotional representation. And you can see this, for instance, in the Alzheimer's patient who goes back to kind of earlier formed memories. Or my grandfather, who didn't have Alzheimer's, but had cancer near the end of his life, when he was really in a bad way a couple of weeks before he died. He went back to his mother tongue and only spoke Yiddish. And these are indications that the neuronal patterns that get set out, whether it's in language or in culture or in our body when we're young, are extremely strong and very deeply ingrained. And so all of this is a is a roundabout way of talking about the fact that the other person who is next to you, your lover, your your husband or wife or partner, they're the ones that are going to get the closest to your nerves, right? Think about, this is what people used to say before we now have a plethora of language and mental health, you know, like anxiety or or depression or PTSD or all these different linguistic forms that we now have to talk about the human experience. Before we had such a range of of language, it was somewhat more simple and a lot more colloquial where somebody would say, oh, my nerves, or you're getting on my nerves. And some of these kind of classic examples of someone then taking a Valium, right, to calm their nerves down. And that's actually the, the original word neuroses has to do with nerves. Or if you go back to Freud, he was a neurologist. And so no wonder 
he talks a lot about drives and nerves and and sort of sexual drive and satisfaction and the fulfillment of these basic drives because he was originally before he became a psychologist he was a neurologist looking at the physical body and so we always have to keep that in the back of our minds when we talk about distress in relationships because at the end of the day the ability to make sense of and put into language our distress that is the via regia that is the royal road to being able to have safety and often when we are upset or overwhelmed or something is important to us which is kind of the theme that i'm going to be following over the next while as we head into the december season when something is important to us our bodies go into high alert that's really important right when we go to dinner with family we go to maybe we're visiting our family's house for christmas or for hanukkah or just for a holiday celebration or just to see them after a long while after the pandemic or for new year's eve we are particularly focused very often on on things going well maybe the emotional temperature of our family environment brings back certain emotions so we we really have to consider that when we go into these situations we may have desires and longings and expectations not just for us to kind of get through them or maybe to get through them in a fulfilling way but also also we have expectations for maybe our partner to see us have our backs be a safe place for us but we're not always in the most ideal physiological state when something really matters to us right it's much easier when you're on a holiday or or it's the weekend and you have maybe you've given yourself time to do nothing and that that can be a lot easier to kind of let things slide or let things roll off your back but if you're in a, a state of vigilance then it becomes a bit of a catch 22 you may be there just to use christmas as an example you know you may be visiting your your family and have very important needs from your partner and how those needs get expressed matters a great deal and we can't fake it we we just can't fake it you cannot you know just because you're talking loudly or you feel intense emotions doesn't mean that you're vulnerable and that's a huge mistake that we all make you know i'm i'm really trying to tell you something important right now why aren't you listening to me and what we don't realize is that actually in that moment it is one of the least optimal frames of mind to be in to receive comfort which is why it is so confusing and so many couples come in and say i have been trying to talk to my partner about this for years or i have never been able to live up to their expectations for years and so what's the point of talking about this i just shut down there's no point in getting into a fight that level of fatigue having gone through things over and over again feeling hopeless anticipating that the way your partner is going to respond is going to lead to a disagreement those are all incredibly important factors in resolving and being able to feel hurt again because 
they create anxiety and anxiety creates protection and protection creates a kind of primal response both in the individual and the other person which then results in a kind of you know when but you know when you try to take a magnet and and you feel them pushing up like away from each other it's exactly what happens in the human nervous system and it's a tough thing to get through it's a beautiful thing to get through but it takes time but it also explains why on these occasions when we expect the most from our partner often things don't go well and then we can kind of use that as a kind of uh you know, straw man, if you will, to be like, oh, we're not compatible. Or, you know, obviously if we can't get along on the weekend when we're together, you know, this relationship's not working. And and of course, everyone has the right to reflect on whether they enjoy being with somebody. But that goes away very quickly. I don't mean the enjoyment of the other person. I mean, a kind of simple reflection on compatibility is is a a very short-lived device in a relationship after a number of years it has nothing to do with compatibility anymore. I, I always go back to Darwin's notion that no matter how similar we think we are, no matter how much we share certain interests or activities, we are different organisms. And tolerating difference in the other person is something that philosophers have written about for hundreds of years. And that Beckett was also trying to show us in in the consternation that you know his characters feel when they make these attempts to soothe each other and disgust comes out and i think it's very relieving for us to go back to these primary texts whether it's philosophy whether it's theater whether it's literature whether it's you know looking at film that in a very important way dramatizes for us these basic archetypal patterns of human interaction, because then it it just takes it out of these fleeting ideas of whether somebody is meant to be with you or not. That will not sustain intimacy over the long term. It certainly can give you know a lot of gas to the engine, and certainly couples that come in who very strongly want to be together, they have a better chance of going through these you know gates of hell, if you will, to intimacy. But but notions of compatibility, just to be frank with you, they're too simplistic and they will not lead to uh, sustainable relationships, period. The, the kinds of connectivity that need to be created over the long term do not rest on the laurels of being compatible. It rests on our basic organization around vulnerability and intimacy and if those things are not explored, then we cannot deepen connection. Uh, we're just too smart. Uh, we're just too wired to protect ourselves from overwhelming pain. So I want to explore this with my colleagues over the next while, bring some people on and just have some good, rich conversations about what they see in the people they work with and how we can all reflect on and, and think about ways of uh, deepening our own responses to being alive. And I think it's worthwhile because when we can kind of get a handle on our reactivity and the ways that we sometimes shut others out, it can actually lead to a quite an enriching experience. And also, it's a great preventative measure against certain physiological illnesses because when we are in a stress response 
the body releases all kinds of neurochemicals that are not helpful to our organs, to our regulatory systems. And so this is all, there's a kind of gestalt here uh, around why these endeavors are, are significant, especially as we go along in the, in the life cycle. So thanks for joining me here today. I look forward to touching base with all of you as we lead up to the holiday season. And, and as always, having good conversations. I post a lot throughout the week on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin. You can go to mitchellsmolkin.com to contact me to purchase the Intimacy Workbook and look forward to seeing you next time. I remain faithfully yours.